Redeemer family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and then rested on one of them, on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, your word reminds us that we need our eyes open, that we may see the wondrous things from your law. The psalmist prayed and asked that you would give understanding, that he might meditate on the works of your wondrous deeds. He prays that you will so beautify your word that it would cause him to look away from the trivial things in this world. Father, I pray that for us right now, that as we peer into this beautiful written word of God that's written in a language that we can read and understand the mighty works of Jesus, Lord, I pray that it would uh, arrest our affection. I pray that it would satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, and I pray that we will walk away from here, Lord, loving and honoring and more in love with all that you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus. I pray that you would do this for your servant, for the glory of Christ, I pray, amen. So there's a, um, what I want to do today is um, have us spend some time here, and I want us to leave here with a deeper appreciation of God's grace to us in Christ. Um, that's what I want. I want us all to leave here with a deeper sense of awe and a deeper awareness of the lengths and the heights that God himself would go in order to make Christ known to us. There's a company uh, called Ethnologue, and, and they've been around for about 80 years. And they've identified 7,117 living languages. 
And of those 7,117 living languages, 143 of them are living signed languages. So when we look at sign language on the television, we're kind of, we think that there's one kind of universal sign language. And, and this, comp- this company says, no, there's actually 143 of them. Language is a system of communication whereby human beings can uh, communicate and interact with one another in everyday life. I want you to consider this fact this morning, that language in one sense is a bridge, that it enables the exchanging of ideas and thoughts and longings and feelings and fears to be communicated to another person. That who would you share your dreams with if you, we did not have a common language? Could you fathom life without hearing, I love you, or I forgive you, or you got the job, or mom, I made a hundred on my test? Could you imagine life without comedians using language to evoke laughter? That without language, we lose almost all of our connection to one another. Language is a bridge that I think we often take for granted that enables us to do the dance of life with other humans. Language is also a barrier. This can be felt acutely when you're in a hotel room and you stumble upon a a channel and everything spoken on the channel is in another language. And in that moment, you're locked out. You have no idea of what's happening. You might feel it as we do when we took a trip to Ethiopia and we were getting off a plane and all of a sudden this Ethiopian couple just starts to talk to my wife and I and they carried on for several seconds. And finally, we says, we don't speak Amharic. Like, we, we, we don't know what you're saying. Maybe you felt this if you've uh, been in a restaurant and you and your family are at a table there's another family or a group or a party behind you, and, and they're bilingual, and so they're ordering their food in English, but as soon as they order their food in English, they resume the, the, the language of the table, and you hear their laughter, you see their smiles, and you're wondering what they're saying, and you just can't break in. Language has been a barrier. It is barring you out from understanding what's going on. It's why first-generation immigrants feel confused when they come to America. And they will often move and settle in places where people speak their language. And the grocery stores they go to have the produce in their language. Language is also a barrier. Our passage this morning is about language. That as you look at the text here, you're going to see over and over this refrain. How is it that these Galileans are preaching the mighty works of God, but we hear them in our own language, in other tongues, in our native language? In other words, what you're seeing here uh, is the Holy Spirit blessing the 120, because this, this is taking place in the room, presumably the same room where the 120 were last week, 
that the Holy Spirit shows up and he does a mighty transformative work on the disciples. And of course, he's going to beef up their memories as they go out. He's going to cause them to remember all the things that Jesus taught them. He's going to give them barrier-breaking grace where they will move towards Gentiles. He's going to give them the best biblical hermeneutic so that they can look at the Old Testament and interpret everything that's happening in their lives in light of it rightly. But the other thing that he's going to give them is boldness. Peter's going to preach a sermon and 3,000 people will be converted. But the first thing he does is he makes them bilingual, multilingual. The first thing he does before Peter preaches a sermon is what you see right here. A welcomed guest shows up, and it's the third person of the Trinity. And his entrance is unlike the entrance of Jesus. When Jesus entered, it's under the cover of night. Very few people knew where he was. The Holy Spirit does not come in quietly. He comes in and he makes a lot of noise. The sound like a rushing wind. And the thousands of people outside of Jerusalem heard it. And so they ran towards where they thought they heard the sound. And he comes in with sights that, that in this room of the 120, that it, that, it, that it looks like tongues of fire comes into the room. And this is screaming, this is a theophany. This is a divine experience of the Almighty God. Holy Spirit shows up and it's noisy, it's loud. There's sights to be whole and sounds to be heard. And the crowd hearing it, like, what is it? And the disciples go outside after being indwelled by the Spirit, and the people are amazed because they hear these disciples, these Galileans, speaking the good news about Jesus, but in languages of those who were in the city. Now, why is this a big deal? Because, one, these were Galileans. They were kind of the unlearned group of people. One, one scholar says they were also amazed because Galileans had a funny accent. It says they had the difficulty pronouncing the Hebrew gutturals and were in the habit of swallowing sil syllables when they spoke, just like I just did, right? It's a Galilean, right? No, that's really funny. It really is. <laughs> I did not plan on that. And so the crowds are amazed. How is it that those guttural swallowing, backwood, unlearned, they never went to a language school? How is it that amidst all the nations represented here right now, that we all hear the good news of Jesus in our own language? It's because God is showing that this is not the doing of men. This is not because they're smart. It's not because they've been trained. This is the outpouring and an undoing and a gift of God. Language had been a barrier separating people from people. Language had also been a barrier separating people from God. 
and Holy Spirit shows up and does something that destroys this barrier between people, Galileans are now engaging with Parthians, but the greatest barrier destroyed there is the barrier between outsiders and God. Even though the writer of Acts calls them devout, in that crowd, it's all types of people. In the end, they're dead in their sins because they don't get converted until the end of Acts chapter 2. And so what God is doing is turning this barrier into a bridge of salvation. What I want to do this morning is look at, uh, first, I want to kind of explore uh, why did language become a barrier that divides us? And then I want to show you what God is undoing here and what he had planned to do at Pentecost to reverse this curse. And so the first point is language became a barrier that divides because humans use language to defy God. Language became a barrier that divides us from one another and us from him because humans use language to defy God. Now, I'm aware I have middle school students in here and you may be going through science right now and you may be uh, hearing about evolution, that we evolved from apes and as your teachers kind of talk to you about language, one of the things that they may tell you is that, that, that we evolved and we used to write on caves and we used to use grunts and symbols and all of this kind of stuff and, and we've evolved and we've become more complex and so you go from an ape to 7,117 languages and, and that's the explanation, but it, it's not true. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we were made in the image of God. The first chapter of the first book of the Bible says that God said, he said, he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And so we believe in a God who speaks, and he speaks in language, and he uses words, and he paints pictures, and he takes these ideas in his mind about what he wants the earth to be like, and galaxies, and solar systems, and he's powerful enough to use, just, just he speaks it, and it happens. And so when it says that we're made in his image, we come here as speaking people. And Genesis 11 tells us that there was a day when the whole earth had one language and the same words. You hear that? There was a time when there was no distinction in language. The whole earth spoke the language that God spoke. And that changed. It changed in the passage uh, that Wilson read for us this morning. It changed in Genesis chapter 11. Now, as a backstory, what's going on in Genesis chapter 11? The key word there is that those people there settled. They were uh, migrating from the east near Eden. They found a plain, the plain of Shinar, and they said, hey, we're going to settle right here. What's, what's wrong with settling? Here's what's wrong with settling then. Because in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, rule, and subdue it. 
So God's plan from the beginning was to put them in Eden and to expand this beautiful dwelling place where God and humans would live in harmony with each other. And they were to work the ground and to obey him and to walk with him. And they were to expand God's reign across the face of the earth. And so God says, don't just stay here. Spread it out and I'm in partnership with you. And of course, mankind sinned. Then you get to Noah and God grieved that he had created mankind. And so God destroyed mankind, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And do you know the first words to Noah when he got off the ark? God repeated what he told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. You hear that? God didn't change his command. Don't settle. Don't build a sprawling city. Spread out across the face of the earth. And then you get to Genesis 11. And God says at this point they had one language. And these are all descendants of Noah. And they decided to not spread out. They decided to settle. They decided to build a city. They decided to build a tower whose heights could reach the heavens. Andre, will you show this? Thank you, brother. So this is a painting by a Dutch painter from the 1500s by the name of Peter Bruegel the Elder. And, and this screen does not do justice to the painting. If you see down here, there's a man getting worshipped, and it's a man named Nimrod. He's down here and people are bowing. And you can see here that these are the clouds. And the image here is this structure that they are building. And their goal is to build a sprawling city to stop spreading out. And, and as one of my Hebrew professors taught the class, that their goal isn't just to build a tall tower that reaches the heavens, that what they really wanted to do was to storm the heavens in rebellion and defiance against God Almighty. Thank you, Andre. And you get this in Genesis 11, verse 4. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, not for his name, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You hear that? And how were they able to carry this out? Because they had one language. Their common language was a bridge to unrighteousness and rebellion. It was language that the serpent used when he deceived Eve. It is language in Babel that is being used in a corrupting fashion. Should it not surprise us that in our passage this morning down there in verse 13, that, that it is language that in the midst of seeing this outpouring of the Spirit, some there are mocking and saying, hey, they just drunk. Don't listen to them. It's language. And so God says they are one people with one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll be able to do. Nothing will be impossible for them. And he says, come, let us. Let us. Our triune God says, come, let 
us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand each other and one another's speech. And so that's what God did. God came down. That city was unfinished. That tower was unfinished because God confused their language. Can you imagine asking for a hammer and someone gives you a nail? Can you imagine trying to do this construction project and you can't communicate with your workers? That is disaster. And that's what God did. And here's the result of this. God made them spread out. He made them disperse over the face of the earth. He made them move. God erected a barrier and confused their language so that people would not be able to do all the wickedness in their hearts. And the greatest barrier here is not human to human. It's also humans turning their backs on God. As they develop their own new languages, they spurn the very language that God would use to communicate his redemption. As they form their own cultures and move to their own places, they spurn the culture and the place where God himself would reveal himself. As they form their own ethnic communities, they hated and loathed the ethnic community entrusted with the oracles and the promises of God. Because of this division, thorns and thistles grew up between people and God. And that explains why it's hard today to break in, to trust to go into a foreign land and do missions, it's hard to break in because of what we did way back then. Our second point tells us that Pentecost is something that God planned to do to reverse the curse. Pentecost reminds us that God planned to do something to reverse this curse, what was a barrier became a bridge to salvation. God's plan from the beginning, Redeemer, was to reverse this curse. He took no delight in nations being separate. He took no delight in the tension vertically and horizontally. And you see this at least in two ways in our passage. How do we know that, that what's happening here is not an afterthought, right? How do we know that God isn't just kind of shuffling, saying, oh, it's the law of unintended consequences. You heard about that, right? You solve one problem, but you pave a way for another problem that you had no idea would be created if you created the problem. If you solve the problem, take, for example, in Australia, there were burrowing birds and the country introduced cats to offset the, the burrowing birds. And, and then after that, they, they killed the birds that burrow. But, but what they didn't understand was that the, the rabbit population would now be 
affected and now the rabbits would go in there and devour. I mean, it's the law of unintended consequences. You try to solve one thing, but as you solve the one thing, there's these whole other consequences that you didn't anticipate. Maybe you read acts like that, like like God is kind of catching up to himself. No. God's plan from day one was to reverse this curse. You see it in Pentecost. Now, to understand Pentecost, you have to go back to 1,300 years. All of this happens on the day of Pentecost. But back in Exodus 34, we're told of three pilgrimage feasts that every Jew would have to attend. Wherever you lived, you would make your way to Jerusalem three times a year. One was Passover, and it was to remind Israel that the Lord had passed over you and had brought you out of the land of bondage. It was to remind Israel of the giving of God's law. The second was the Feast of Weeks, and that was 50 days after Passover. And that was when the wheat was harvested. And so that feast was a reminder that God himself had been generous to you. He did not let you starve, that your crops has, have been cared for, and he has, been, he has met your, not only your spiritual needs in Passover, but your material needs through the Feast of Weeks. And then later is the Feast of Booths. Now remember, if you're coming from all over the world for Passover— and the Feast of Weeks is 50 days later, then what most Jews would do is you would not make two trips. When you came into Jerusalem on Passover, you just camped out, and you stayed until the next feast. Now, how do we know? It's because when Peter preaches later in this text, he's going to tell them this Jesus that you killed and you crucified. And so he's talking to the same people who were there during Passover when Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, what we read in our text and we see Pentecost, it's been renamed that, but it's really the Feast of Booths. What this means is 1,300 years before this, when God commanded these pilgrim feasts, he did it knowing that this day is coming. He's not playing catch up. He's already planned this. And you also see it as we look at the prophet Joel, whom Peter quotes in his sermon that we'll look at next week. But Joel, Joel writes in Joel chapter 2, and he's a real prophet, not, not the bootleg prophets who tell you who's going to be the president, who tells you, right, that the world will end on this day, who tells you that 2020 is going to be your year, and 2020 is nothing like the year you thought you would have. Not those bootleg prophets who in Moses' day would be stoned. He's a real prophet. And he speaks, thus saith the Lord. And the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, he sees this vision. It was our call to worship. But at the, he says that, that on that great day, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. It's the reason why last week Luke told us that who's in the room? He says it's not just the 12 disciples. It's 120. And who's in the room? It's men and it's women. And Joel also says that that on that day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not every Jew who calls on the name of the Lord. Not everyone who speaks Hebrew or Aramaic who calls on the name of the Lord. He says, everyone. And you know what? Paul picks up on this same passage that Peter references, that that he references Joel. Paul adds to it. Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can they call in one whom they not heard? How can they, how are they, how can they call in one whom they've not believed? How can they believe in one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how can someone preach without being sent? And so if you're thinking about a set of dominoes, right? That what Paul's saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how will they call Paul when they believe? Well, how will they believe Paul when they hear the good news and the mighty works of God. Well, how will they hear the mighty works of God, Paul, when people preach? And how will people go and preach, Paul, when they are sent by God? Right? So there's a domino effect that Paul is kind of laying out in Romans 10. But here's the caveat. God sent prophets to one people group primarily. He dealt with his people in a few languages. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came, he never stepped foot on American soil. From what we can tell, he never traveled more than the distance of our state and maybe Tennessee. If Jesus traveled 200 miles north, maybe 200 miles south or southwest into Egypt? If he traveled 100 miles east and west, do you realize that everything Jesus did happened in one part of the world in one period of time? He preached in maybe one or two languages? Zach Eswine talks about this deep theology of place that Jesus had, that he put down roots in one part of the world. He says that the demons first drew my attention to Jesus' sense of place. The demons intertwined two laces. First, they, in, they, they identified Jesus with Nazareth, and second, they knew that this Jesus was the Holy One from God. And so here's what he's saying. He was from Nazareth, but he was the Holy One of God. And so when Jesus comes on Palm Sunday on a donkey, they say Jesus from Nazareth. When he is crucified, Pontius Pilate has a description posted on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. When he identified himself to the apostle Paul, he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. You, you hear that? There's a, the roots that Jesus put down in one particular place. He spoke a particular language. 
And in his humanity, he chose to lay down his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. Everything worth happening happened right there in a part of the world the size of Mississippi and Tennessee. His travels to Egypt happened there. His journey back happened there. His years of obscurity happened there. His three-year earthly ministry happened there. His miracles happened there. His teachings happened there. His crucifixion and his suffering happened there. His burial happened there. His resurrection happened there. His ascension happened there. Now, here's what it means. It means that, that up until this point, salvation is restricted to people who are proximate to that place and that time and those languages. And what are the dominant languages of Jesus' day? You know this by the sign that was put above him when he was crucified. John 19 tells us Pilate wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross of Christ and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And this was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Here's the problem. If you didn't know those languages, you were shut out without hope and without God. And so back to how Paul uses Joel, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they be saved unless they believe? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preach? How can someone preach unless they are sent? But here's the thing, it's not just preaching for preaching's sake, it's preaching in such a way that the preacher and the listener knows the same language. I can't believe what I don't understand. I can't embrace what I can't make sense of. And I think we kind of rush past the beauty of the Holy Spirit here. But this isn't an afterthought for God. You see, I think sometimes we treat what the Holy Spirit is doing in Acts much like the Challenger launch in 1986. NASA wanted to send astronauts into space. And everything checked out until nine miles later in the air, the space shuttle exploded. And we lost astronauts that day. And as NASA did its research, it was discovered that rubber O-rings is the cause of the catastrophe. That these rubber O-rings were supposed to stop fuel from being mixed with combustion and because they launched really cold 
the O-rings fractured mid-air and you get a mixture between fuel and flames. It's, it's an O-ring. It's something so small, something that we missed, something that we thought, would, I mean, surely that's not that important. I think when we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power and the might and the beautiful remembrance, we think about all these big things that we're going to do. We miss this little small thing that unless the Holy Spirit makes the gospel and makes his proclaimers able to communicate the good news in language, in real language. And that is what's happening in our passage. Did you notice what's happening? That people are here from all parts of the world. Andre, thank you, brother. So here is Jerusalem right here. And if you sort through that list, you're going to see Cyrene and Libya and Egypt and Judea and Arabia. You're going to see over here in Rome. You're going to see Asia, Phygeria, Cappadocia, Pontus. I mean, you're going to see all of these either people groups or places where these people dwell. And somehow in God's providence, because it's Pentecost, they're all making this journey right here. And so what does God do? Because he has the nations right here, guess what he does? He gifts those, thank you, Andre, he gifts those 120 in that room with a supernatural ability to communicate the mighty works of God and the languages of the people there. What is God doing? He is reversing the curse. What had been a barrier separating them from one another and them from God, God says, I myself will come down, and this time it's not to confuse. This time I'm coming down to empower these normal Galileans with this supernatural ability to proclaim the good news of Jesus and languages from every nation and tribe and tongue. And these people who were there would leave and they would return back to their homes and Christianity would spread like a wildfire. What does this mean for us? First, we ought to be thankful. We have this in our own language, and we take it for granted. And we take it for granted. We ought to be thankful that God has done this right here, or he has put the good news of Jesus, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, that we can now think and know God's thoughts. We have been graced with this precious gospel. Second, it is a privilege, but there are people groups out there who still don't hear. And they still don't 
have this translated. And maybe the Lord is putting that on your hearts. Maybe he's calling you to study language. Maybe he's calling you to partner with missionaries who are going to the ends of the earth to make Jesus beautiful and undeniably attractive. Maybe God is calling you, as he did Jim Elliott, who says he, law, he, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He died trying to preach the gospel to Indians. Third, despite our differences in this world, there is a set of common questions that abide in the hearts of all humans. The Bible says God has written eternity on the hearts of all. God has shown himself through things created. There is a beautiful story of redemption that translates across people groups. Right now, the Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing movie ever. And if you go back and you look at the countries where it's the highest grossing movie ever, or at least in the top five, here's a takeaway. People don't like death. People think about eternity. And there is nothing more beautiful than one who would intervene and die to save humanity. And that translates here and everywhere else in this world. It is the meta narrative, it is the big story. And we see it even in movie sales. Fourth, we ought to see that the Holy Spirit has done something better than pre-Babel. John sees people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. One day, this barrier that separates us, it won't be there. One day, we'll be in heaven with God's people, and not everyone will speak English. God is creating a symphony and not a section. You see, a section is when you get all the woodwinds and they play, or you get all the percussions and they play, and that's kind of good, but it's not like the symphony. It's not like when you have the percussion and the woodwinds and the brass, and they're playing this beautiful song that the Bible tells us that is how time will end. There will be a symphony in heaven where people from all tribes and all tongues and all languages, we will enjoy them as we enjoy our God and we will do it forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who turns barriers into bridges. We thank you, Jesus, for the most beautiful story ever written that's actually true, that a great king would leave the right hand of his father and come to this earth 
that he would suffer, that he would render to you all the righteousness you desired. He would not hold even to his own life. And by your grace, you raised him up. You've made him invincible. And those who are in you, Lord, we are invincible. Death has lost its sting. We can now walk in the newness of life and enjoy you now and forever. Father, make us like your disciples who opened their mouths and proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.